Morning, PBC. I have to say it's a, it's a great joy to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, I was feeling quite anxious uh, a few weeks ago about this sermon and uh, this week leading up to it, but I have to say the encouragement that PBC has been in reaching out to me to pray for me uh, and encouraging me as I bring God's word to you this morning has lifted my heart and has made uh, this whole sermon preparation and the weeks leading up to this a joy in my life. Uh, so if you're in your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. We'll begin, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we will begin. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. To the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, for it supplies everything that we need for righteousness and holiness in this life. You have made yourself knowable. You have made yourself searchable to us. Lord, you have given us your word, and that is one of the greatest gifts of grace that we could have ever received. I pray we would treasure your word, and through me this morning, Lord, that you would be glorified through your preached word that you would be exalted above every name and that Christ would show, be shown to be more valuable and more treasurable than anything else in this world. Lord, I pray that you would quiet my heart and still my heart before you, that you would have me speak only that which you would want me to speak for the edification of your saints and for the drawing of the lost of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Speak through me now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Hathaway's hit song from 1993, he asks one simple question over and over again. He says, what is love? What is love? He gives us an answer to this question. He says, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. <laughs> repeatedly, repeatedly tells the object of his love to give him a sign and in defining love this way, Hathaway lays before us the simple view of love that I think many in our society have. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. If our view of love is simply not to do harm, Jesus challenges that. Jesus invites us into a greater view of love in which harm isn't the ultimate standard but it is the way in which the Father has treated us and the way in which we are to treat one another in response to the Father's great love for us. This is our big idea for this morning. Jesus commands us to pursue holiness, to grow in brotherly love, and he gives us three imperatives towards that end. 
it's helpful to remember where we were. If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount through the Gospel of Matthew. And in verses 1 through 6 of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us to not judge and to judge rightly. Not to judge without first examining our own lives for the log that is in our own eyes and then seeking to help our brothers remove the specks from their life. A kind of love that we are to ask Jesus for. The love that first looks inwardly in self-examination and then responds outwardly to one another for greater sanctification and growth and holiness. So three imperatives for how we are to love. The first is ask. Verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Simply ask. Jesus demands that we take advantage of the free and unhindered access that his children have to come before the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in a time of need. Jesus wants us to draw near to the throne of grace. He wants us to be an asking people, simply being on our knees before our Father in dependence on Him to provide for us all that we need. Jesus knows that this will be a struggle for us, and I think even more today, this struggle is um, more apparent. We live in the blessed West. We have so much so many good things that have been lavished on us, and we assume that we are going to keep those things. But our Father wants dependency from His children to provide those gifts. Now, how many of us, after having lived in the blessed West, have found prayer to be a chore, to be a burden, and to be hard? Sometimes we get so full on the gifts of our Father that we neglect to pray for Him to pray to him, to pray for the gifts. Now, thankfully, I believe PBC to be an asking church. As I said earlier, PBC was constantly reaching out to me in prayer for this sermon. And PBC's, if you are with PBC in our group me, you'll know that the prayer thread does not stay silent for long. Some of us even have to mute it because it goes off in the middle of the night and we're trying to sleep. But I'm so thankful that PBC is an asking church. But sometimes it seems like our asking isn't bearing fruit. Sometimes I feel like we can fall into the trap of asking God as if he's a vending machine, selfishly asking for the things we want and not asking for the things that would be in line with his will. And so Jesus, to correct that in his wisdom, tells us that maybe our lack of fruit in prayer is not in our act of asking, but maybe it is in our seeking. Jesus says, seek and you will find. Are we asking for the right things? Are we going to the word for the truth of God? Are we going to counsel from godly brothers and sisters? Are we in Sunday schools, involved in fellowship groups? I'm sure many of us are. Are we seeking 
the right things? Are we seeking first what God would have us to seek? Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or are we seeking after the things we want? Or maybe we are seeking rightly, but we have a different problem. Maybe we seek and then strive instead of seek and then ask. How many of us, after searching through God's word, are quick to go and do? Quick to put into actions what we've learned, the things we've been taught, and the things that we have come to understand as right and true from God's word. That is a good instinct. But if we don't humbly come before our Lord first in asking him dependence, we can fall into the trap of trying to be godly on our own. We can fall into thinking that we can attain to godliness without the help of the Father, without the help of the Son, and without the help of the Spirit. Yet there is hope. Jesus doesn't leave us here. He doesn't simply say to us, just read your Bible and pray, and everything will be okay. You'll figure it out. Jesus gives us one more imperative that corrects any thought that we must do this or do that on our own. Jesus tells us to knock. Knocking represents our heart's posture before the Lord. In knocking, we are requesting to enter into his door. When we knock on anyone's door, we are not presuming our entry into that home or into that place or into that establishment. We humbly become before the owner of the home and knock and hope that they will allow us entry. We can have confidence that Jesus Jesus' Father, our Father, if we are His in Christ, will open the door, will uh, receive us into His home. But when we knock, it is our heart's humble posture before the Lord to open the door. We are trusting Him with our prayers, knowing that He is the only one who is powerful enough to answer and to affect our prayers. Our knocking is our humility before the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. We are not left to pursue holiness on our own. You can just see Jesus here repeatedly, earnestly, and continuously pleading for us to come to our Father. Jesus' words here are written in the original language in the present tense. The idea is that we will not just seek, we will not just ask, and we will not just knock, but we will seek, seek again, ask, and ask again, and knock, and knock again before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus tells us the parable of the unjust judge. He says, he told them the parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor responded to man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For while he refused, 
For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not the God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Command comes, will he find faith? Our earnest prayers are meant to be repeatedly offered to the Father. We are meant to continuously ask, continuously seek, and continuously knock at the Father to give us the kind of brotherly love and affection that we need to first examine our own lives, ask for the forgiveness of sins, seek the brotherly love of one another so that we can, um, so that we can love one another the way God would have us love one another, in a brotherly love. God works through our prayers. In James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, we read that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. God works through the petitions of his saints to work out his plan. And his plan for his people is to be a holy people who wholly love one another. We can trust him because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Think of knocking, asking, and seeking this way. Think about the athlete. The athlete must have a good workout regimen. He must exercise regularly. Just like the Christian must exercise uh, his spiritual fitness in coming before the Lord, he must exercise the muscles of his prayer. He must continuously go before the Lord. So too, the athlete must spend time in the weight room, on the field, practicing and training and training and training. And the athlete must diet well. The athlete needs to have a well-rounded diet. Exercise is not enough. So too must the Christian. Not only should we be coming to the Lord and asking, but we should be feasting on his word, knowing what we should ask, knowing how we should ask it, and knowing what the Lord's will for our life would be. He has given us all that we need in his word. His word is our diet, and our prayer is our exercise. And the athlete must also have strong mental fortitude. Just like the Christian, we must have spiritual fortitude. We must knock humbly before the Lord. If our hearts are not in the right place, all our asking and all our seeking will be limited. Our hearts must be humbly before the Lord. Our goal in the Christian life is spiritual fitness, fitness and growth in holy love towards one another. How we come before the Father matters. It matters that we ask, seek, and knock. We would have no guarantee of success if Jesus didn't give us an unbreakable promise in response to these commands. He tells us not only how to come before the Father, but why we should come before the Father. We must ask. Why? Because everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks 
or to the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. God answers our prayers. For everyone who asks, receives. To the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus promises us answers and help. This is a promise for his children that our prayers will bear fruit, that he will respond to us, and he hears us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. We must be God's children to ask, to seek, and to knock, and to have our answers answers for prayer to love one another in a godly love answered by our Father. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus, he, he bids you to ask, to seek, and to knock at the Father's door for the forgiveness of your sins. Ask him for the grace to be forgiven in Christ Jesus. Seek to understand what forgiveness means, what repentance and faith is. And knock at the Father's door, and he will not leave you there. If you are not his, ask, seek, and knock at the door to be entered into his kingdom, and he will answer. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But sometimes we seem to be asking. We seem to be knocking well, and we seem to be seeking after God's will, and yet God still seems far. Sometimes it seems to be in, in God's will the things we're asking for, whether that's godly children, whether that's saved parents, healing from an illness or an ailment that has been plaguing us for most of our lives, reconciliation with members of our family who are not pleased with the lifestyle choices we've made, right? Sometimes we want what we would think to be God's will. To that, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, there is a difference between happiness and joy. God bids us to have joy in his promises. He does not say, measure my love for you by what you perceive to be answers to your prayers, but measure my love at the cross, where my blood was shed, where my son was slain for the forgiveness of your sins. Base your faith in God's goodness, not on your life circumstances, but looking backward at the cross and what he accomplished for you there. He will give you strength to ask, wisdom to seek, and humility to knock. He will equip you to grow in holiness and brotherly love. But why is it hard for us to believe the promises of God? I think it largely has to do with our perspective. Jesus bids us to come to his Father and ask, seek, and knock. He promises us that he will receive, find, and that God will open the door. And yet somehow... This amazing promise isn't enough. We have a trust problem. And that is what Jesus addresses next. Point number two, trust. 
Beginning in verse 9, it says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your, to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? God's promises won't matter to us if we do not trust him. And to show us that trust, how we are to trust him, Jesus uses the analogy of a son depending on his dad. We are to trust God like a son trusts his dad. To provide, to protect, to keep promises. I, have, I am the benefit of having a good and trustworthy father. I grew up in a loving home for most of my life. Thankfully, uh, by God's grace, my father was a guy uh, who loved the Lord. He sought to teach us his word and to disciple, disciple us and grow us in his word growing up, and I thank him for that. He was there for me at my baseball games. He supported me in my school endeavors. He disciplined me when necessary, and it was necessary a lot. <laughs> but he was a loving God. And so relating to God, our Father, as Father, often brings back memories of joy, thinking about my dad. These two analogies point us to the goodness of our dads. The first is of the bread and the stone. Jesus says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Children depend on fathers to be breadwinners. No more uh, tr so was that true in Jesus' day. It was more true then than it is now. The fathers went out into the field. They, they tended the crops. They tended the sheep. They traded their goods so that they had the food that they needed to provide for the family. They literally came home with the bread. And I can just imagine the son coming through, seeing dad come home from a hard day's work, coming through the door and saying, Dad, Dad, can I have some bread? And the father saying, here you go, son, and giving him a stone that looks like bread that he picked up on his way home. No, that doesn't happen. Not typically, by God's grace. Thankfully, even we who are evil parents know how to give good gifts to our children. Thankfully. The father gives the good gifts to the son. Stones don't satisfy, but bread does. It meets our needs and satisfies our hunger. The second analogy is that of the fish, right? The fish, uh, like the bread, is food. But why the snake? Why the serpent? The first time I read this, the first five times I read this, this confused me. I could just imagine the son and the father out there on the lake fishing, coming home, coming into shore, hauling forth their, uh, their catch of the day, and having the son come home and saying, Dad, Dad, can I have some of the fish that we caught? And his dad, with an evil grin, turns, pulls out a snake from the bag and says, here you go, have this. Don't get bitten. Is that really what Jesus is saying? Well, after reading it some more and, and thankfully being blessed by uh, other saints who have uh, come before me and studying this passage, well, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Remembering the audience to what, who Jesus is speaking matters. Jesus is speaking to the first century Jewish man. And to the Jew, what mattered was not just the food you ate, but the cleanliness of that food. 
So Leviticus chapter 11, verses 9 and 41 through 42 says this. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. Every swimming thing that swims, or every swarming thing, sorry, verse 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Verse 42, whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours and whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat for they are detestable. Snakes are detestable to the first century Jewish man. Now, fish would have been suitable for a child. They would have been good for food, tasty, nourishing, and satisfying. And they would have also left the child clean, pure. But to the father who doesn't have a fish, he could easily substitute a snake. The snake could be cooked, seasoned. I'm sure it would be tasty. They have good meat. It would satisfy the need of his child. But the snake, unlike the fish, would leave the child unclean, unpure, and unrighteous before the Lord, tricked by the sin and deception of an evil father. Jewish fathers would have cared about purity. God is not like an evil father who would trick his children. He is not like a genie who wishes that you would just make those three simple wishes, but as soon as you make them, everything goes horribly wrong. God is not waiting for you to wish upon him to trick you to get what he wants. He is begging you, imploring you to pray and bring your petitions to him because if we who are evil can give good gifts, how much more will a good father in heaven? We should relate to God as father just like a child relates to his daddy here on earth. But for some of us, that will always be a struggle because our dads let us down. Now, unfortunately, I can relate here. My parents were divorced, and so I spent half my time with my good father and my loving um, family on that side, and the other half with my mom. And she was very loving and kind, but the man that she married uh, was not the greatest father. I remember one instance specifically where he had promised us, uh, leading up to the weekend, throughout the week, he had made promises to myself and my younger brother that we were going to go on a kind of father-son fishing trip. We were going to get up early in the morning, pack the gear, go to the lake. We were going to fish, hopefully catch some fish, learn how to fish. It was going to be a great bonding experience. And at 8 o'clock, my brother and I jumped out of bed Saturday morning, ready to go, grabbed the gear, put the fishing poles by the front door, grab the tackle box, make sure we had snacks and everything else that we needed. Eight o'clock turned into nine o'clock. Nine o'clock turned into 10. And so we, uh, we went downstairs, tried to wake up my stepfather. He had a tendency to sleep late because uh, he had a tendency to drink the night before. And so uh, he said he'd be up in a little bit. We came back upstairs. Well, 10 o'clock turned into 11 and 11 o'clock to noon. And, uh, and we went back downstairs, and still nothing. Well, 2 o'clock came, and 3 o'clock came. And by the time he finally aroused and woke up, 
it was far too late to go fishing. Any dreams we had of bonding with my stepfather went out the window. Sometimes our earthly fathers let us down. Sometimes they break their promises. Sometimes they disappoint us. But the biggest problem affecting our earthly fathers is not a problem for our heavenly father. Our father's biggest problem is that they are evil by nature, sinners. Our father who is in heaven is not evil. He is not fallen. He is not a sinner. We can trust our father because he is not like us. Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We can trust him by remembering two truths. God is holy. Man is sinful. We must remember who we are and who he is. He is perfect, sinless, without any temptation of evil in him. There is no imperfections in him. The fullness of every perfection finds its resting place in him. And we are sinners by nature, fallen, corrupt. The serpent was our deception. The stone is our heart. We are, by nature, totally depraved. But by grace, we can be healed. By grace, we can have the stone that was our heart turned to flesh, as Ezekiel said. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Father invites us to be healed of our uncleanness, to have a new heart by faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not know the love of a good Father, Jesus invites you to turn to Him, to turn to His Father, who is perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly loving. He will not let you down. He will not disappoint you. If you will put your trust in him through faith and repentance, this father, this good father, will be yours as well. Our father is so much more. He has richly lavished on us every good gift that we, and we are the beneficiaries of selfless love. This is not of our own doing, but it is the free gift of grace to those who trust in Jesus, who trust in the one the Father has sent. But we are not called to trust alone or to ask only, but we are called to respond. Verse, or point number three, love. Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Our response to a good father's love to us. How are we supposed to respond? Love. Simple. 
Christianity just simply comes down to this, right? Uh, Christianity, we could say, is summed up in this one statement, right? For this is the law and the prophets. For all of the Old Testament scripture, this is what it points to. The golden rule. So whatever you would have others do, just do also to them. Just do this, right? Simple or not. As R.C. Sproul said, we turn the golden rule into rust. It's not so simple. We take the good and true golden rule and turn it into rust. Two ways that I think we chiefly do this is first by turning it into license. We take the golden rule and turn it into license for every sort of immorality that we can think of. What is the golden rule of sex in the modern age? Consent. You do to me as I would do to you. The twisting, a perversion of the golden rule. And many Christians have used the golden rule to blatantly support what is sinful and turn to this as their justification. Former President Barack Obama told ABC News that he and the First Lady, quote, are both practicing Christians, and obviously this position may be considered to put us at odds with the views of others, but, you know, when we think about our faith, the thing, we root that we, uh, the thing at the root that we think about is not only that Christ sacrifices himself on our behalf, but it is also the golden rule. You know, treat others the way you would want them to be treated. Obama used the golden rule to support the LGBTQ plus revolution and still maintain the name Christian. We distort and twist the golden rule. And the second way we do that is through our legalism. If you've ever been in a legalistic culture, you know that the problem with legalism is that it can't be done. And the moment you mess up, you're crushed by the weight of your guilt and sin. We cannot keep the golden rule. We cannot simply do what we are commanded to do. The golden rule doesn't get us into the narrow gate. It does not get us into the narrow gate. Only by faith alone and by Christ's righteousness alone do we enter the narrow gate. And if we try to use the golden rule as our legal standing to gain entry into the kingdom of heaven, we have so surely missed the point. The moment we work towards our salvation is the moment those works turn from righteousness to sin. We might say the golden rule of interpretation is that the golden rule is only golden in its context. We must keep the golden rule in its context. In verses 1 through 5, we're commanded to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brothers. But then seeing clearly, we are called to correct our brothers, overlooking what we can overlook in love and taking the speck out of their eye and helping them to live a more holy life. In verse 6, we're told to treasure and honor the kingdom and to shake the dust off of our robes from those who would trample the kingdom under their feet. In verses 7 through 11, we're told to ask, seek, knock, trust, 
And then here in verse 12, to love. The golden rule is for believers who depend on God for forgiveness of sins, for wisdom to understand, and for the strength to live rightly. Let us, not remember, let us not forget that the reason we are hearing the golden rule from Jesus is because Jesus is here on earth doing what we could not do. He is living a perfect life that we could not live. The fact that Jesus has need of saying the golden rule to us is evidence that we can't keep it. Only then, when we understand that the golden rule is for believers who by faith are justified, not by works, can we show the golden rule to others. And thankfully, I believe PBC, generally speaking, understands this. PBC is a loving church. You have loved my wife and I well since we have come here. You have shown us brotherly love and affection, not trying to prove to us that you guys are loving people, but because you're responding to the gift of love that you have been given in Christ. My wife and I are well-loved, and we see the glory of God's love lived out in your lives. So thank you, PBC. But if it is only by faith that we can live this way, and faith is the most important thing, then why are we commanded to do? Why are we commanded to action? Why doesn't God just make us different instantly, make us perfect right now? And I think that's because that's the way God has structured this world to receive the most glory. Our sanctification glorifies our Lord. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we love God sanctifies us, and his glory is shown to one another and to the world. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our sanctification is a witness to the lost and dying world around us. We respond rightly to persecution, rightly to one another, rightly to the world by showing them the kind of love that we have first received in Christ. Our sanctification leads the world to first accept the love of God for them. The world is drawn into the kingdom of God by God's people loving them well and wanting some of that and learning more about what it means to follow Christ. But the world also glorifies God even when it rejects God's people and their love it glorifies God by recognizing our good works and brings our Father who is in heaven glory. Our sanctification is how we respond to God's gift of grace and salvation. We are to see his great love for us 
for our souls in giving us the gift of prayer and inviting us in to what God has uh, for us in giving us everything we need to love this way, recognizing that God has treated us not as we, not as we ought to be treated, but as we would wish to be treated. Jesus treated us with kindness and dignity, and we scorned him and sentenced him to death. God, in response to our wickedness, treats Jesus the way we ought to be treated. And God treats us the way Jesus ought to have been treated. He punishes his son and justifies us. May we look to Jesus and what he has done and respond to that love more and more so that God's people will be, glo- will be loved well and that the God of love would be glorified in us, in our church, and in the world around us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father,